again on the 27th of November and actually be able to finish uh, the book out in this year, diving into 2 Peter in 2023. But this is the triumph of Christ. Uh, It is Peter's kind of set aside to kind of refocus us as he walks into this discussion of suffering. I was doing a little history reading this week while preparing for this message and came across the phrase, which I'm going to mispronounce, so I just want you to know up front that I'm going to do this, a pyrrhic victory, uh, which in summary is when someone wins a battle, but at such a cost that it basically costs them the war. Our own American Revolution had such a battle, uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill, The British succeeded in taking the hill, uh, but sustained substantial losses in soldiers and officers. The British General William Clinton is said to have remarked a few more such victories would have shortly put an end to British dominion in America, which we did take care of that dominion, so that's all done. Uh, They took the hill, but a higher cost of life and morale. I think they lost over 100 officers, 1,000 soldiers, which was double what the American revolutionaries had lost. And it's said that the loss only boosted the morale of the revolutionaries. Uh, The battle ended up hurting the victors and aiding the supposed losers. But I have a question. I wonder if that would have been the immediate perspective of the American soldiers on the hill. The ones that ran out of ammunition, the one that had to throw down their arms, the ones that had the charge come after them, the ones that fled from the battle, they faced the bullets, they faced the British charge. Would they have had that perspective? You see, sometimes it's hard to see the victory, uh, to recognize the triumph achieved due to our vision being clouded by the immediate problem at hand. That can happen to the believer when they encounter suffering and hardship. They can easily miss the overall victory in Christ by the seeming defeat and pressure of the day. Peter, as we looked at last week, has just transitioned in his letter from living a godly life and how we're supposed to act in this world to engaging a hostile world. He started to shift his focus to look at the reality of suffering. The problem is that when we look at the battle of suffering, we tend to forget the victory found in Christ. We lose sight of what Jesus has accomplished and how complete that triumph was and still is. So Peter, in the midst of explaining um, kind of the reality of this Christian life, the reality of suffering, takes a moment, that's what these verses are, to ground us in the triumph of Christ. And these verses are going to paint a glorious picture of that triumph. They're going to move us from seeming defeat, Christ's death, to the completion of that sacrifice, the end, his rule and reign. As David Helm notes about these verses, it opens with his, meaning Jesus' willful submission to unrighteous rulers, but by the time it closes, a complete reversal has taken place. The submissive son is by the end, the ruling king, seated at the right hand of God, and everything All angels, authorities, and powers are now subject to him. That is the point of these verses. So as we journey through them, don't lose sight of what Peter is trying to tell us. The victory is already won. Our Lord reigns supreme. And he wants the church in that time, and he wants us to see that we already have the victory, knowing 
that we're going to walk through some suffering, the potential for suffering, knowing that we're going to feel the weight of persecution. By the way, I think this is the International Day of Persecution, prayer for the persecuted church around the world. And understand this, here we are looking at triumph on the day when we're remembering those who were persecuted in Christ. So Peter directs the early church, facing that suffering of persecution, to walk the path of Christ's triumph, a journey he directs us to take. And he begins with his sacrifice, actually. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, which is the whole point of that verse, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Peter begins the triumphal march looking at Christ's suffering, his death, but he wastes no time tying it to his divine purpose and victory. And here's the thing he's trying to say. Christ suffered, and there's no, no denying that, but he suffered for a purpose. It is connection that he might bring us to God. I put it here in the notes. It's often too easy as believers to forget the full scope of sin. Sin drives a wedge between us and God. Sin condemns us to eternal death and punishment. And I put in my notes, and rightfully so, because we live in a world that rejects that, that pushes back, well, why does God do this? Why is God so picky? Well, God is holy and he's just and he's right. And so he must condemn sin and he does that rightfully. We have no right to enter God's presence, no standing by which we could plead our case. The lost world loves to say, well, if God and heaven is real, I'll demand that God answer my questions and explain his actions. They don't realize something. They have no standing to walk into his presence. They have no standing to make any such statement, and actually, they never will. But Christ's sacrifice for his children makes it possible for us to come into a holy God's presence. We have immediate and direct access to him. In ancient courts, Certain officials controlled access to the king. They verified someone's right to see him and then introduced that person to the monarch. Christ performs that function for us as believers. Hebrews 6.20 says concerning the inner court of heaven that he has entered as a forerunner for us believers, having become a high priest forever. And that access and connection is secured. As Peter makes crystal clear, it is completed. Christ also hath once suffered for sins. If you are able to be with us on Wednesday nights, we're working through Leviticus, and it's critical. Actually, I know sometimes people think Leviticus, uh, why read that book? It's, it's a tough one. It's the least read book in the Christian church, but it's a shame that it is the least read book, because as you read Leviticus, you fully understand what Christ has done for you. And one of the things you see constantly repeated are the sacrifices which being such a, 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 a when I say, instant gratification world, we want answers right away, we can't handle uh, depth. There's a reason behind the repetition. It reminds us that we needed the perfect sacrifice. Christ comes, and that's why Peter emphasizes the once suffered, because Christ's sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated. It accomplished his purpose completely. So as we potentially encounter suffering, we have to remind ourselves that Christ walked that road of suffering into its fullest extent. He felt the full wrath of God the Father against sin. 
He felt the full abandonment by the Father and the Spirit because he, Jesus, became sin for us, dying so that we could have a restored relationship with our God and Savior. So with that in mind, we need to understand that suffering should not drive us away from God. Instead, suffering should beckon us toward him. And that's what Peter is trying to tell him. Christ suffered and his suffering was death. He died for us. And so as we encounter suffering this world for him, it shouldn't push us away. It should pull us in. It's not supposed to bring us into conflict with our Lord. It should instead have us resting in him. Yet we must wonder, is that our tendency? Just take a moment I was writing that question down, and every time I write questions down, then I have to think about them. I have to process them. And I I think about myself when I'm suffering and how quickly I go to conflict with God. How quickly I'm wondering why. And look, the question why is not the worst thing in the world. It's when we persist in our why, when we lock into our why. I was talking with someone in the last couple weeks, and they said they, they grappled with this. They, a loved one was battling cancer, and they, their first response was, why, God? Why this person? Why not me, or why not someone else? And they had to come to grips with the reality, because you see how suffering can quickly put a wedge between the one who suffered for us, instead of being what pulls us and connects us with him. Does the suffering and persecution of this life draw us to the Savior, or does it have us drawing battle lines against him? Peter concluded his initial look at Christ's sacrifice, stating, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And by the way, uh, we're going to get into this. These are some of the more difficult verses in the New Testament as you walk through this. So uh, you're going to get my interpretation, I think a biblical one, but I do leave room as we wander through this that other uh, wise people are mistaken and have different opinions. So there you go. Um, He makes obvious that Christ literally died on the cross, which, by the way, was a truth that needed to be affirmed. One of the the heresies of the day was going to throw out that either Christ didn't die, uh, and we hear that today, right? People are like, well, he didn't really die. He just went into a coma, and then he woke up in a tomb, sealed up, and somehow busted his way out. So just the ridiculous nature of that should, should... put up warning flags. But there's other people that, you know, they, he didn't die really. It wasn't really him. His spirit left that, that, that body. And so there is heresies coming in the first century that we've repeated. And Peter's actually addressing them almost in all actuality before they even hit the scene. He's actually giving truth to the church, uh, to us, that, that he, he really died. He was put to death in the flesh. Uh, he was there. Um, and it was, again, a truth that needed to be emphasized because of heresies that were coming down the line even. Uh, But he focused in on Christ's spirit. And understand this, Christ's spirit experienced a type of spiritual death, just like an unbeliever experiences, because he was separated from the Father due to taking on our sin. That was not a figurative thing. That was a real thing. That's actually another heresy that's kind of launched today. And I find a lot of believers tying into it. Uh, sadly, because the reality of Christ's sacrifice is that the God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit abandoned him in that moment. That's why you have Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God forsook him in that moment. Yet Peter wants the early church and, and us to focus in on Jesus' eternal inner person, his eternal spirit, 
that has always been alive, even while his physical body lay dead in the tomb and awaited resurrection. Peter wants them and us to see what Christ did in his living spirit while his body lay in the tomb, leading us to what I title his sermon, verses 19 through 20. You could also say it's his speech, because when you hear sermon, you think someone's proclaiming the gospel. He's not preaching gospel to people incarcerated in hell. He's giving them a I told you so statement. So the verses here say, by which, and that's speaking of Christ's spirit. So as Peter references, dead in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, quickened in the spirit. Then he says, by which, by this living spirit, also he went and preached under the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And here is a victory lap that carries us all the way back to the early days on earth to the time of Noah, and one of the first and most despicable attempts by Satan and his cohort to pollute and destroy God's promise of redemption given to Adam and Eve. So this is one of the most vile attacks because if you remember, Satan tempts Eve to sin. Eve sins, Adam sins, and and plunges us into death. That death and sin is passed down to us uh, through the generations. But God in Genesis 3.15 makes a promise. He says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. In other words, the promise is emphasizing that someone is going to be born of a woman that is going to battle and defeat Satan, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, This was the first promise of a Redeemer to come, divine, yet born as a human, of a woman to save us from our sins. This is Christ. This is messianic. It was a promise that Satan took to heart and attempted to thwart. Satan believes God, oftentimes more so than we do. And he hears what's said, and then he goes to attack that. And this sermon, Christ's speech, was a bold proclamation of their failure. It was a righteous, I told you so. And then I had written here, don't engage in this because you can't do I told you so righteously, but I took it out of my notes, but I still said it anyway, um, just to make sure because I was afraid you'd all leave and suddenly be obnoxious in our community. So I don't want you to do that. Uh, Satan, though, and I want to give a little backtrack before we dive into what he's exactly talking about. Satan has a long history of attempting to thwart God's redemptive plan. Let me give you a couple. You walk through the annals of time and you see him attempting to wipe out all the Jews. Just read the book of Esther. He tried to destroy the Messianic line during the time of Joash. He attempted to have baby Jesus killed by Herod. He incited the religious leaders and the Jewish people to attack Christ and ultimately perpetuate Christ's crucifixion. I want you to realize when Christ died on the cross, Satan and his angels are thinking, we won. Now, I'm going to go through the history, but just imagine for a second Uh, fallen angels who have committed a horrible sin during the time of Noah and who are incarcerated for that sin in the abyss, the deep bottomless pit referenced in Revelation. And I won't wander all the way through scripture and all the references to it, but they are captive. Just so you know that there is a bottomless pit and that fallen angels could be incarcerated, go back to the demons who are cast out of the the man that was demon-possessed in the hills, and they say, don't send us to the abyss, let us go into the pigs, and the pigs jump off the cliff, kill the pigs. The angels aren't sent to the abyss. They're not locked up. They knew that God could send them to the abyss, to hell. Um, 
and be locked up there. But imagine the potential victory dance of the incarcerated fallen angels, certain wicked and fallen angels that have been locked in place of severest torment and isolation. Yet, if such a dance began, it ended quickly because Christ made clear that it is accomplished. He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, before I dive into explaining this, and before some of you think I disagree with them, that's fine. You can be wrong too. All right? So what... (laughs) I say that in jest. There's different opinions there. Uh, Seven commentators I read, none of them agreed with me except one. So um, there we are. But I want you to understand the, the premise behind this passage. Why share this information? And the purpose is victory, that Christ is triumphant over everything, that nothing can defeat Christ. And so if you're in the darkest hole of life, and doubts swirl all around you, he is victorious over that. That is the point he's making. But let's dive a bit into this passage. There's quite a bit of debate surrounding it. And one's interpretation will take you all the way back to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, during the time of Noah, which Peter is indicating. Yet as you examine Genesis and look over to 2 Peter and read in Jude, and by the way, uh, my, uh, my final opinion, take, interpretation of this passage was developed uh, years ago when we preached through Jude, because Jude is referencing these same angels, and through that study is how I came to the conclusion, which gives insight into Genesis. I say this, no matter what your viewpoint is, you understand this, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so the interpretation here helps us understand what Genesis is talking about. And if you have a different interpretation of Genesis, it's going to change how you view these verses. But it doesn't change the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. We know what to believe based on what the Bible has said, and it makes the best interpreter of itself. But as you wander through, you see, I think, strong evidence for the fallen angels being incarcerated, angels who left the angelic domain to indulge in sexual sin with humans, just as the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, so outside the realms of nature. And why were these specific angels locked in the abyss? Because they, as MacArthur notes, made perhaps the most heinous effort to the God-ordained provision of marriage. The demons mounted an attack on marriage and procreation that wickedly influenced subsequent generations. As a side note, what is our society doing today? It is duplicating in its attack on the family, just so you understand how important the family is, what the wicked angels decided to do back in Genesis. Now, that means this. If you're going to follow through with that interpretation, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, when God references in those verses the sons of God, I believe he's speaking of fallen angels and not sons of Seth contrasted to daughters of Cain. Uh, There's a reason I think that. One, it makes the daughters of Cain, it makes every woman wicked, it makes every man right in that kind of sense. And so I think it it, it makes more sense to understand what he's saying. There's a lot of Hebrew and Greek words I could start throwing out to prove the point, but I have to be fair. People with a different viewpoint take those words and they make them say what makes their point. So I just want to kind of share what I think it is. Now, these fallen angels, if you read in Genesis, are drawn to the beauty of females. So they left the spiritual realm and indwelt male human bodies. This is the first biblical record of demon possession. Another 
wicked thing that the angels are accomplishing at this time. First, we see demon possession all through the New Testament. We see it, uh, evil spirits afflicting different kings and, and things throughout the Old Testament. Here is the first instance of demon possession. And they married women. They, they, they developed a relationship with them. It wasn't, it was something that was longstanding. Their offspring, though human, had a pervasive influence on them from the demons. And if you take into consideration God's promise to Eve that one of her offspring would be the Messiah, then you get a glimpse of what I consider the second and possibly greater offense of attempting to pollute all of humanity's lineage and destroy any chance of a savior. And now you see how Satan believed God and acted upon it. I'm going to send a savior through the lineage of Eve from the woman. And what do these evil angels do? Embody men and then engage in destroying what would be the promise of the savior. These seemingly superpowered individuals carried great sway. That's what Genesis tells us. And a lot of people get, well, look at them. They're, they're considered great and they're considered mighty. They are, just like the Rephidim are great and mighty, but their, their power, their influence, their heroics, because they were heroes to the world in a dangerous way, gaining power, reputation, and causing fear by being fierce and deadly. That doesn't look like God's servants. That replicates Satan's methodology. And so, yes, they were great, and yes, they were fierce, and yes, they accomplished things that made people think of them as heroes, but it was satanic. And as we know from the Genesis story, God was not about to let Satan and his cohort win. God is sovereign, all-knowing, and all-powerful. He's not surprised by this, and he's not going to tolerate the rampant wickedness of humanity perpetuated further by this perversion, which, by the way, if left unchecked, would have polluted the whole line of humankind. And so God sends what? A flood, out of which only eight righteous were saved, even though Noah, the preacher of righteousness, preached for 120 years. And how many people believed him? No one. Eight. It's family. They were the righteous. In other words, you see how wicked the world was, and you see how successful Satan appeared. The offspring from the wicked unions of angel and humanity were still human. They embodied human men and died in the flood. The angels who possessed the men were locked in the abyss. Satan's diabolical plan completely thwarted. And I want you to see how close that plan seems to success. It's closer than Esther battle with annihilating the Jews, closer than Joash's. His attempt to kill Jesus got pretty close with Herod. And then suddenly the crucifixion happens and Christ is dead. So we tried to prevent the Messiah from ever being born. And now Satan in this time and what Peter's referencing is pointing to the fact that Satan looks at Christ being killed on the cross. And as we know from our brief overview earlier, he continues from this. Even though he's unsuccessful, he still tries to kill him. But after Christ's death, we realize that the misconception of victory by Satan was, was clarified by our Lord. He made clear that God is forever victorious, regardless of how it appears Satan is winning. No matter how victorious this world seems or thinks, 
that it is, nothing can thwart God's plan. And that is the point, the victory that's there. As one writer noted, the Lord proclaimed his triumph over Satan, sin, death, and hell to the very worst of demons who disobeyed God in the worst manner in the days of Noah before the flood. And we can be sure of this. He will continue to proclaim that victory and gain the victory over whatever Satan concocts next. And that is the promise to believers. Satan will not win. There is nothing that will surprise God or overturn God's plan. The point Peter is making is that the master plan of Satan comes to nothing at all. Whenever you feel the weight of wickedness in this world, read Revelation. Read how easily the Antichrist army is defeated. We march in that army, but we are just there to look good because it is the breath of God and they are annihilated. And we have to remember the victory found in Christ. It, and, and Satan's plan is completely obliterated by the power of God and his purpose toward us. I say all that to ask now a question. Is that how we see our Lord? Is that the reality that we actually live out? And I know we're talking about grand schemes of Satan and these massive movements in humanity, but do you see God's victory in the everyday struggles of your life? What about when you can't see the answer? When it's dark all around you? You can't respond, you can't reason, your mind, maybe what you banked on for all your life is, is failing you. It's not there, it's not giving that. The emotions of life are just, you, 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 if you're honest, you're saying, I can't see it, I can't, I can't grapple with it. Can you see your Lord as victorious? See, is this the reality that we actually live out? And I would prod us in this way that when we are in the darkest hole, when we're dumped in the pit, when we don't see a way out, when we see death and destruction and pain and hurt and doubt and, and, and whatever it is all around us, Peter is saying, I want you to realize something. Satan tried back in the time of Noah to not let the Messiah be born, and he kept trying. And Satan incited people to crucify the Lord, which was his plan to begin with, Christ's plan, to, and nothing of his plan came to fruition. Can we, as we live today and as we battle with this world and what it throws at us, and it throws different things our way, can we see his victory, his constant win? Or are we constantly thinking that this world has the upper hand, constantly tempted to cater to its whims and passions, or cater to our own? Will we see Christ, or will we be mired into what we think, feel, you name it? We can know with certainty that our God has accomplished His purpose. He is and always will be victorious, a victory boldly proclaimed in each believer seen in His salvation. Verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet again, another verse that has been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and therefore misapplied. It's been used to promote baptismal regeneration. It's been overly linked to water since the example of Noah connects to the flood, which was a lot of water. Uh, but the connect to Noah looks at the broader picture of Noah and his family. As one commentator notes, God preserved them from the flood waters while the rest of mankind perished. 
Noah and his children are a genuine type of the salvation in Jesus Christ, which preserves believers safely through God's judgment on sinners. In an interesting way, we link the flood to baptism, and it's actually just not there at all. Because one was floodwaters of destruction, and one is used to depict our, our connection, immersion, relationship with Jesus Christ. When we baptize someone, we ask them, who are they connecting with? When the early church baptized, it was to symbolize their relationship to Christ, new life. In other words, it's all about the rescue of believers. That's the point Peter is making. Now, it's helpful to remember the word translated baptism simply means to immerse Immediately following his statement that baptism saves us, Peter clarifies that it is not the physical baptism, not as removal of dirt from the body. This is not water on your body. It's not symbolizing that. He's speaking about a relationship. It's a cry to God, an appeal or the answer of a good conscience toward God. What Peter is saying is our salvation speaks to our relationship with God based on being immersed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As MacArthur notes, God provides salvation because a sinner, by faith, is immersed into Christ's death and resurrection and becomes his own through that spiritual union. Salvation does not occur by means of any rite, including water baptism. Instead, we appeal to God for a conscience free from accusation and condemnation. We crave spiritual cleansing that comes solely through Christ's blood. And to quote him again, therefore, They, speaking of believers, repent of their sins and plead for God's forgiveness and the removal of the guilt that plagues their conscience, all of which is available through trusting in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So when people grab this verse, I'm always blown away because right after the baptism statement is, I'm not talking about physical baptism. If you want to retranslate that verse, it is not the removal of dirt by water. It is instead our relationship with Christ, our leaning completely on him, our faith in him, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is his salvation, promised and secured in him alone. (coughs) We're carried through the waters of judgment on the ark of his redemption. And just as Noah and family were carried safely through, we as believers are also safely carried by our Lord and Savior. We find our rescue our redemption in the triumphal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, secure in his hands. And I I underline that in my notes, secure in his hands, not held by our own. We are secured in him. He is the surety of our salvation. We are not. And we're not seeing our salvation altered by our circumstances. Your being saved, your being secured in Christ doesn't rest on you. How you think, feel, doesn't change whether or not you're saved. We don't lose that because we can't, because we're secured in him. And that's what Peter again is trying to say. As these people are about to walk through suffering, and the suffering varied if you read through history, some communities, there was a, was a pressure that we would feel, right? There might be lost promotion and lost ability in business. But in some areas, they were destitute. You read some of the churches in Revelation, and everything is removed from them. They lived in communities that wouldn't let them engage economically at all. You couldn't buy, you couldn't trade, you couldn't do anything because you were a believer. Some of the amazing churches in uh, Revelation, the first couple chapters, they were living through the worst of persecution. It looked like the tribulation. It felt like that to them. 
And what Peter is trying to tell them is no matter what the circumstances are, nothing changes the security in Christ, that he is carrying you through, that he's going to finish, quote unquote, what he started. What an amazing truth, saved and secured by Christ. But how well do we connect to that truth? I'm afraid we spend too much time fixated on what we have earned and far too little in trusting what our Savior has accomplished. What have I done? What have I felt? What have I answered? What have I thought? Instead of fixing our eyes, which is what Peter's driving to, what is, it's his salvation. Fix your eyes on what he has accomplished. Our rescue is in him. It is in his victory over sin and death. Our faith is in him, and we know that he forever rescues a sinner from hell and brings us securely to heaven. We are redeemed through his salvation and we can know that our Lord and Savior reigns supreme. And so Peter closes his triumphal march with a look at his supremacy. As we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to start with Christ's death, the victory dance of fallen angels and Satan, and we're going to end with him having dominion having proclaimed his triumph yet again over Satan and his plan, having secured our salvation. And Peter paints that picture beautifully for us. And now he just wants to make sure we understand where is our Lord and Savior, who has gone into heaven and is on, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. By the way, that list of three just tells you everything is subject to him. And he just wants you to understand angels includes both righteous and fallen angels. In other words, nothing escapes the supremacy of our Lord and Savior. Now, we live in a confident world, a world filled with people who think that they're in charge, that they're on top of it all, above it all. This is not new. You read philosophers through the ages, and they really felt supreme. They even talk about that. They don't believe in a God, and the reason they don't believe in a God is because they believe they are gods and humanity should be worshiped. And so in other words, they do believe in a God. They just want him to be like them. And they've made many bombastic statements. I always encourage people, read how they died. And that'll tell you a lot about what they really believed in. And they believe nothing of what they said, because when they faced their death, they wavered or cracked. Now we get better as we have more philosophers that are wicked of not recording how they die or listening to what they say, but none of them have this confidence that comes out because here's the reality. At some point, and it may all be all the way in eternity, you realize you're not in charge. You're not the king. You do not reign supreme because they nor we reign supreme. Instead, it is Christ, all made subject unto him. Now the right hand is known as the place of prestige and power, and Christ is the one at the right hand. He is the one exalted. He is the one who reigns with everything subject to him, everything. <clears throat> Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and I just want you to understand again the three part there. If you're wondering who's going to bow to Christ, everyone. Above, with us, below us. It doesn't matter. Everyone will. And it says in that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a point in time 
when his dominion, his supremacy will be acknowledged by every being, no matter if they're redeemed or not, no matter if they're fallen as an angel or not. Our God reigns, and as his church, we must never lose sight of that. Peter closes his journey through Christ's triumph with a bold and beautiful statement of Christ's supremacy. But how do we feel and react to the supremacy of Christ? How do we see his authority? Is it with wonder and joy? That's what a believer is supposed to just behold their God. And instead of grating, which is what all these writers love to write about in all their fancy words and speeches, misusing God's gift to promote themselves. So are we going to look as believers with wonder and joy at our God, or is it done begrudgingly? You see, suffering has the ability to erode perspective. It has the ability for us as believers to see only defeat. We can become too entrenched in today, and it struggles and miss the fact that Christ has won the war. Peter, in the midst of speaking on the reality of suffering, goes to great lengths to ground us in the triumph of Christ. Let me quote David Helm. He notes this, The resurrection and ascension of Christ gives us a certain hope that our own victory has been secured. Everyone in Christ shall be left standing on the last day. So how should we be handling suffering in light of Christ's complete triumph? Or maybe worded another way, Are we handling suffering as we should in light of Christ's complete triumph? See, as we journey through this temporal world, facing potential hardship and loss, I hope we can have our lives centered upon his victory and then our victory through him instead of on the current status of a dying world. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. Thank you for these reminders as you inspired your apostles to write, and then they write these verses that reground or refocus us in on your victory, recognizing that no matter what we're walking through today, uh, we can know that even the seeming battles won by Satan are not won, and the war has been completely annihilated by you, that you have taken over every plan of his, that every plan of his will not come to anything that he desires, but instead you will accomplish your purpose. You are victorious. And as your children, we are also victorious. Give us confidence and strength. Help us to apply this principle in the everyday of life. Because as we look at the cosmic struggle, it's easy to get caught up in that, but this is also meant to deal with the everyday wrestlings of life, the everyday seeming defeats, the everyday doubts, the everyday concerns, the everyday crushing emotions. You've given us these verses so that we'll grab hold of them and understand that you give the victory and that we are victorious in you and Satan can do nothing to take that away. I hope as believers we're driven to your word, driven to your truth. We don't let the lies of Satan cloud or cheat us of the joy that we have in you. In your precious and holy name, amen.